Y'all, we're in Matthew chapter three, verses 13 through 17 this morning as we continue our study of the life of John the Baptist and what it really means to be fully committed to Christ, what that looks like, what that would look like in our lives. Every preacher I know has at least one good baptism story. You ask them, if you know any preachers, you got any in your family, uh, or you know any on a first name basis, just, sit at, just ask them, hey, what's your best baptism story? And I guarantee you, you'll hear a good one. Uh, I wanna tell you a couple. One of them was from a guy I know who's now long since retired, but one day he was baptizing and realized that he had a hole in his waders. Now, you may not know this, but we Baptist preachers, we wear waders uh, over our clothes when we baptize so that we can come downstairs quickly without having to change clothes. There's no wet clothes to change. You can get down here quickly. That's a problem, though, when they leak, and that's what happened to my friend. He was standing up there in the baptistry, and suddenly he just felt that those waiters, both legs of them filling up. There's nothing you can do at that point, right? And he got done and, and thought, okay, I've got to be in the pulpit preaching in 10 minutes, and I'm soaking wet from the chest down. What am I going to do? So he grabbed a dry baptismal robe, big white robe, uh, just left all of his wet clothes there on the floor in the baptistry room and came downstairs. Now in that church at that time, they used to make the preacher and the deacon of the week sit in these big throne-like chairs up on the stage during the worship service. You know, like they're on, on display under glass, right? Uh, and, and so you, you have to imagine everybody's singing there. This is the last song before the sermon. Everybody's singing out of their hymnals and they look up and they see their pastor walk in barefoot in a big white robe and go up on stage. So everybody's watching, thinking, what the heck is going on? He walks over, sits down next to the deacon of the week, who happens to be this guy named Jim. Now, Jim's in heaven now, but I have to tell you a little bit about him. Jim was a great man, gracious kind, good guy, but if you saw him and you didn't know him, you'd think, this is the meanest guy on earth. He just had one of those faces, right? That like, oh, this guy's never smiled in his life. So when my friend sits down next to him, he leans over and says something to him. Remember, this is in the middle of a song, everybody's watching, and Jim throws his head back and just laughs out loud. You can hear him over the singing, his tears streaming down his face. So as soon as church is over, everybody goes up to Jim and says, what did the preacher say to you? And he will not tell. I mean, he didn't tell a soul. But I know the preacher, so I know what he said. You wanna know? The preacher sat down next to Jim and he leaned over and said, I'm not wearing any underwear. <laughs> Which is really a dirty thing to do. Now, I have, I have some stories. I, I also had a hole in my waders once. Fortunately, we lived right next door to the church in, in a parsonage, so I just barely had time to run home, get changed, and run back in time to get up and preach. Another time, I baptized a little girl, nine or 10 years old. When I brought, cute little girl, when I brought her up from the water, she shot out a stream of water from her mouth. And I'm thinking, what are you doing opening your mouth when you're underwater? But I guess she thought her mouth needed baptizing, which is probably not a bad thing. Um, another time, the first church I ever pastored was the church I grew up in. Little country church, the baptistry was not heated. This one is, for those of you who wonder, it's, it's heated. It's like bath water in there. But when I baptized in winter, that, that water was freezing. So what they did was they had, they had, I don't know who did this. I knew all these people. I don't know whose idea this was. They came up with this kind of redneck engineering method of heating the water. This, is, this was literally a nine by 13 metal cake pan that they would float on top of the baptistry water with a hole cut in the middle of it with a, a, a heating coil about that long sticking out of the bottom with this four foot long cable with a, with an out, with, a, with a plug on the end of it that I was supposed to plug into an outlet. 
yeah. And I'm supposed to get into that water, right? And they're like, yeah, it's no big deal. Just, just take a hoe and kind of stir it up and it'll stir the warm water into the cold. It didn't really work. It didn't kill me though, so that's, that's a win. My best baptism story though, by far, is the day I baptized my friend Ralph. And, and I don't mind telling this story because Ralph is a friend and I think he think, finds it funny too. If not, he'll, he'll kill me. But um, Ralph is at least twice my size. Big, big man, which never been a problem. Ever. Here, here's, my, here's my solemn pledge. I have never in my life drowned anyone up there. I've never had a problem getting anyone out of the water because guess what? We're buoyant. As long as you got air in your lungs, the water doesn't want you. It, it tries to push you out. All I'm there to do is just kind of steady you until you get your feet under you. And it's never been a problem getting anybody out of the water. The only problems I've ever had are when people at the last moment decide they don't want to go in. You know, so they're there, all the people are watching, and all of a sudden they decide, oh, I don't want to go backwards. And usually when that happens, it's a little child, and I can just kind of gently lower them and, and get them under, and then bring them right back up. And kids, don't worry, I'm not angry at you, I'm not going to be like, get you some of that. So, you know, it's just real gentle, and back up, not a problem. The problem was, Ralph's a big guy. And so I couldn't just gently, you know, force him under the water. So what we saw instead, what the congregation saw in this solemn and wonderful moment was this brief wrestling match. Um, and I had gravity on my side, so down he went. And the problem was, at the last moment when he decided he didn't want to go, he stiffened his entire body. So when he went down, he went down. And I mean, to the bottom, and his feet went straight up. So the congregation sees two feet straight up in the air and this tsunami just laps over the side. Fortunately, the choir wasn't up there so they didn't get swamped. But he comes back up and he's all embarrassed. He's like, man, I'm sorry. I just, I don't know what happened. I just panicked at the last moment. I said, it's okay, it's all right. Uh, but the, the kicker to the story was the next Sunday, one of my deacons, his wife, Bobby, came to me and she said, I gotta tell you this. Now, Bobby's from Arkansas, so that explains my accent here. She said, Jeff, I, this last week, I woke up one night at two in the morning and my bed was shaking and bed is a two-syllable word in Arkansas. My bed was shaking, and I, I was just thinking, what's going on? Is there an earthquake or something? And then I realized that Jack was laughing, and that's what was shaking the bed. And I said, Jack, it's two in the morning. What is funny? And he said, I just can't quit thinking about Ralph getting baptized. <laughs> now, John, John the Baptist, had a better baptism story than any of those, the best of all. Not because it was funny, because it wasn't. And not even because of who got baptized, although that's certainly a very remarkable part of the story. But because John's baptism and what happened directly after answers a very fundamental question for us. A question that we all ask deep down inside our souls and minds all of our lives. And that is the question, how can I be good enough? How can I ever measure up? How can I feel good about myself? How can I be good enough? And there are some of us who ask that question, we ask it in different ways. For some of us, it's every time we look in a mirror. You know, I, I really feel for, especially for young women these days, because society tells them they have to look a certain way. And so there's this constant pressure of, well, every time I see a picture of myself and that doesn't, that doesn't look good enough, that wouldn't, no, what's wrong with me? What can I do? How can I change? And it's not just young women, but it's especially them. How can I be good enough? It's a lie. From the pit of hell that says you have to look a certain way or you're not worthy, but we believe it deep down in our hearts. For some of us, it's more in the, in the area of success. 
It's, a, it's about if I can just get out there and achieve something that will make everybody who knew me growing up say, wow, then I can feel good about myself. Then I can come back to my, to my 10th or 20th or 30th high school reunion and everyone will just bow before me. And then I'll feel like I'm worth something. For some of us, sad to say, it, it's a matter of overcoming mistakes of the past and flaws in our character and we just have this heavy burden that, man, I've, I've made so many mistakes. I've been such a bad person. If I can just change, if I can just do enough good deeds, maybe go to church enough, maybe pray enough, maybe then I can be good enough. For some of us, for some of us it's about earning the approval of a particular person or a particular group. I knew a young man once who was an outstanding football player and he had a concussion in a game once and he'd had some in the past but this one knocked him flat. I mean, he was in a hospital bed for a week. And they had to keep the lights off in the hospital room because every time they turn on the light, this is part of his post-concussion syndrome, every time they turn on the light in the room, he would immediately get sick to his stomach. And so he had people coming to him every, every day. I mean, his chaplain, some of his coaches, doctors who would come and say, listen, you're a, you're a young man, you're in your early 20s, you need to walk away from football while you still have a, a healthy brain. Uh, and, and you have to understand, this is a young man whose life, his family's life was, was centered around his football career. When he was 16 or 17 years old, his parents decided to move from where they lived to a much more expensive uh, suburb because that was a, a place that had a high school that went to the state championship every year. And that meant they had to sell their house and rent a tiny apartment that they could afford just to give him this opportunity. And he got a college scholarship out of it. And then he became a starter on a big time uh, college football team. Uh, and, and yet here he lay in, in the bed thinking if my football my football career is over, what's gonna happen? And then a doctor comes in and, and says to him, a, a new doctor, and says, you know, there's a chance you could still play. We could do some tests and just see if, if that would be possible. And he immediately sent out a text message to everybody who, who he knew who was part of his family and friend group. And he said, the, the thing that broke his heart was, his dad, the whole time he'd been in the hospital, his dad hadn't come to see him, hadn't responded to any text messages. And you know he, that didn't bother him because he knew his dad was busy and it was okay. But he said, when I sent out that text about I might be able to play again, that's, that's when he heard from his dad. His dad texted back and said, oh really? Well, what, what do you need to do? What, what kind of test was, will it be? Let me know as soon as it happens. And he said, it just made me feel like if I'm ever gonna be good enough, it's, it's only gonna be on a football field. So how can we answer that question? How do we answer? There's really only one answer. There's really only one way to be good enough. Eternally good enough. And that's what John found out this day. See, I grew up as a Baptist all my life. I've been coming to these kinds of churches. And, and I have to admit, when I was a little kid, I was a little prideful about the fact that there was actually a character in the Bible named the Baptist because I noted, and I was very proud of the fact that there wasn't, there wasn't you know, Philip the Pentecostal, there wasn't Bartholomew the Episcopalian, right? It was just the Baptist. And I, I was an adult before I realized that that didn't mean he went to a denomination, right? He didn't go to First Baptist Jerusalem. Because <laughs> there really weren't people called Baptists until the 1500s. We don't actually have biblical sanction that says we're right. I hope y'all know that, right? You, know, you hope you're not going here thinking, oh, I'm in a Baptist church, now I'm gonna be saved. That's not the way it works. So, uh, but the bigger question is, they called him the Baptist because he baptized people. The bigger fact, the thing you probably don't know, is that John didn't actually invent baptism. 
If you go all the way back to the time of Moses, Moses' brother Aaron was the first high priest of Israel. From then on, every high priest of Israel, every year in the fall, when it came time for the Day of Atonement, he would bathe himself in water. In fact, he would immerse himself fully. The word baptism in Greek, baptizo, simply means to, to dunk or to immerse. He would dip himself in water from his head to his toe as a way of saying, I am cleansing myself before I go stand in the presence of God. Every Israelite, before they went into the temple, they'd ask themselves, have I been in contact with anything dead? Have I, have I contracted any skin diseases? Have I done anything to make myself ritually unclean? If so, I need to bathe myself. I need to be immersed in fact, rich people in Israel in the time of Jesus, they used to build their houses with these big tanks. They called them mikvahs. It was a ritual bath. It had to be big enough for a full-grown adult to completely immerse themselves. This was a way for a rich Israelite to say to his friends, look how holy I am. Every time I go to the temple, just in case, I get myself baptized to make sure that I'm clean. Some of you know the story of Naaman. He was a general from Syria and he contracted leprosy, the most feared disease in the ancient world. And somebody told him, there's a, prof there's a prophet down in Israel who can heal you. And he came and he met the prophet Elisha who told him, go dip yourself seven times in the Jordan River. He did and he was healed. Sometime after that, we don't know if this is connected, but the, the Israelites started requiring any Gentile who wanted to follow Yahweh, the God of Israel, to be baptized. It was a way of renouncing your past. It was a way of saying, I need to be cleansed in order to be worthy of the God of Israel. See, what was different about John, he didn't invent this idea of baptism. What was different about him is, was he was saying, all of you Israelites need it too. And not just to get into the temple. You need to be baptized because you have sinned. You must repent. You must get right with God. And you would think that a racially proud and self-righteous group of people like the Israelites were at that time would resent that kind of message. But by the thousands they were believing and they were being baptized out there in the wilderness, out there in the Jordan. And so here's John baptizing and then this happens. Matthew 3 verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So you can picture it, right? Here's John, this, this hairy man out here in the wilderness, and he's baptizing people one after another. They're lined up as far as the eye can see, and he looks up, and the next guy in line is his cousin Jesus. And he's, he says, I can't, I can't do this. This doesn't make any sense. You're the one person on earth who's good enough, who doesn't need any help at all. Why are you getting baptized? And Jesus says, okay, number one, you're right. Notice Jesus doesn't contradict him. I, I, I don't have sins to repent of. But this is to fulfill all of righteousness. What does that mean? Righteousness simply means to fulfill the word of God, the will of God, to do his will. Jesus is saying, I am here to do what my father sent me to do, and this is the next thing on the list. And I'm gonna do every single thing God has sent me to do. And by the way, that's why we're baptized. We're baptized because we follow Jesus. We're baptized, whether it's in a river or a horse trough or a baptistry like the one we have, it doesn't matter. 
we're baptized because we're following one who has saved us. Y'all, wanna, y'all need to understand this. I, I need to make sure you know. That's just overpriced city of Conroe water up there, okay? Ordinary water. I don't go over and say a blessing over it. It's not holy. It's just water. The point is that Christ has saved us. The point is that when you go under that water and come back up, you are preaching a message without words to everybody sitting in this crowd and everybody watching online that says, because of Jesus, I'm no longer me, I'm a new person. The old me is buried, now I'm raised to walk in a brand new life. And it's a beautiful thing. And that's why we rejoice every time. I love, our students are always the first to just whoop and holler and, and cheer. And, and I remember when I first got here, somebody said, should they be doing that? And I mean, yeah, of course they should. That's what the angels are doing. That's what Jesus did that day. He was setting a, an example for us. He was doing his father's will. But what came next, that voice from the heaven, is what really made an impression on John because it spoke words that he never forgot. It spoke words that taught him something new. Here's it, here, it, here it is in his own words. Here's his version of the story from John chapter one, verses 30 through 34. He says, this is he of whom I said, after me comes one who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, did, did John say something there that bothered you at all when he said, I did not know him? Did that bother you? Did, you, did part of you say, well, how can he say that? Because he was his cousin. I mean, he grew up in a home with Zechariah and Elizabeth, both of whom knew who Jesus was and probably told him over and over again. Zechariah had heard it from the lips of, of the angel Gabriel himself. And John, when he was just a fetus in his mother's womb, had, had leaped at the sound of the voice of the mother of his Messiah. How could he say, I don't know him? Well, I think we need to remember two things. First of all, John did not have the benefit of the entire canon of scripture like you and I do. He didn't know how the story ends. But secondly, and more importantly, I don't think John is literally saying, I don't know who this guy is. He's saying, I didn't really know him. I didn't know everything there was to know about him. I thought I knew, but there was things that I didn't comprehend until that day. I knew he was good enough. I knew he was special. I knew he came to do something amazing. I knew my job was to prepare the way before him, but I didn't know all there was to know. So what did John find out? What did the voice say that he didn't know before? Because this is what's gonna help us understand what it means to be good enough. Number one, John learned that day that Jesus was the son of God. We use that term a lot. It's one of the terms the scriptures refer, uh, refer to him as, but that's significant. Think about it. Here's Jesus standing in the waters of the Jordan River, physical human being, just like you and me, and yet fully God, according to scripture. And then there's the voice of God from on high, an, a disembodied voice. Here's God on earth. Here's God speaking from on high. And then here comes God, the Holy Spirit, flying down to land upon his shoulder. What is that? That is the Trinity. That is God in three persons. Scripture's very clear on this. And I know people say, well, Jeff, that doesn't make any sense because the Bible also says that there's only one God. There's not three gods. There's one God. 
Every Jew would wake up every day and they would say the words of the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God, not three. So how can there be one God but three distinct persons? How can, how can Jesus and God be communicating? How can Jesus the Son be praying to God the Father? How can the Holy Spirit be entering Jesus and, and empowering him? How does this work? I don't know. It doesn't make sense. I'll just admit it to you. But you know what? I like that it doesn't make sense to me. Do you want a God that any idiot like me can easily explain? Because if that's your God, then who's to say that some idiot like me didn't make him up? For me, it's comforting to know that there are things about God that cannot be easily explained that I can't wrap my mind around no matter how many times I've read the scriptures and and gone to seminary and prayed and thought. and, And I believe that when I'm in heaven a thousand years, maybe 10,000 years, I'll still be working this out in my mind and maybe at some point I'll get it. But it's okay not to understand completely. God is bigger than us. And you know what else is great about this? You know, the Bible says in 1 John that God is love. You wanna gel down God's, all of God's attributes into one all-consuming attribute. It is the love of God. He is love. But how can that be if he lived for all of eternity before he ever created the universe? How can he be a God of love if he lived for all of eternity by himself? You and I, ordinary people, we can't live a a couple of days without human contact. How could God be happy and joyful and not lonely? Well, because he wasn't alone. Because there is a fellowship within the Godhead. Look at John chapter 17 sometime when Jesus says to the Father, think about, he he says, Lord, the, the glory that you and I shared before the creation of the world. That's what he's talking about. For all of eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have dwelt in in what what boils down to an incredible celebration, a celebration of love, a dance of love, a, a rejoicing, a constant, a constant time of joy and fellowship like nothing you and I can imagine. And you know what? We talk about salvation. You know what salvation really is? Salvation is when God says, come on in, come join the party. I want you to be a part of this love that we've shared since before the foundation of the earth. Join the celebration. Now, there are three times in Jesus' life we know of that he heard a voice from on high. This one's one. The second is during the, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and he goes up on top of a mountain. James, John, and Peter are with him. Suddenly, Elijah and Moses appear. And this voice from the sky speaks and says almost the same thing as at his baptism. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And then the third is when Jesus is in Jerusalem, the week of the crucifixion. And he's praying out loud and he says, Father, glorify your name. And a voice from on high says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. He's talking about the crucifixion. I will be glorified in your death. See, think about that. At the beginning of his, of his earthly ministry, this is before Jesus has ever done anything uh, that we can see for the Lord. Any kind of ministry is right here at this baptism. Then later when he's on his way to Jerusalem, and then when he's at Jerusalem itself, just days before Good Friday, he hears the voice all those three times. If you've ever wondered how Jesus, who had the same physical and emotional needs that you and I have, 
If you've ever wondered how, how he could stand it, how he could continue to go on and on and keep on with his ministry, his mission, even though he had constant criticism, constant false accusations, persecution, uh, betrayals, he had physical pain, he had poverty, he had disappointment, and he had the constant, constant knowledge that the way he was going was leading straight to hell on earth for us. How could he keep on going? It's because at every stage he had the approval and the understanding and the love of his father. And he knew, my father thinks I'm doing good and that's all that matters. But John wasn't thinking about any of that. What John was thinking was, I just heard the voice of God audibly and nobody's heard that for hundreds of years. And that voice just said that this man before me, my cousin, Jesus of Nazareth, is the son of God. And I know that's something that he didn't say about Abraham or Moses or David or any of the prophets. So this guy, this man I've known my whole life is more than just a prophet. He's more than just Messiah. He's the son of God. He's something I didn't even know could exist. Now that's the first thing John learned. The second thing he learned was that Jesus was the suffering servant. See, John knew the book of Isaiah. Trust me, he knew Isaiah. He knew the whole scripture up to that point. He knew that in the second half of Isaiah from chapter 40 on, the tone of that whole book changes and it goes from very grim to hopeful. And Isaiah tells four stories. The, the scholars call them the four servant songs of Isaiah. Four different times in poetic form, Isaiah tells a story about a character he calls the servant of the Lord. And the servant of the Lord is somebody who's going to suffer for the sake of others. And the rabbis, for ever since Isaiah wrote those words down, 700 years until the time of Jesus, they believed that Isaiah was talking about the nation of Israel itself. Because what nation has ever suffered like the Israelites, the Jewish people, to this day? But I want you to read with me the first verse of the very first servant song out of Isaiah, Isaiah 42.1. It goes like this, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So John knew that. So when he saw the spirit of God land on Jesus and he knew that the, the Lord said, I'm gonna put my, my spirit on my servant. When he heard the voice say, this is my beloved son, I delight in him. He delights in the servant. John knew, oh, this is what he was talking about. Have you ever had a moment, I hope you have, when you're reading the Bible or you're hearing a sermon or in Bible study and, and there's a verse, there's a passage that you've heard your whole life, you've heard for years, over and over again, and suddenly that one time a light goes on and you're like, oh, that's what it means. It's a beautiful thing. Doesn't happen every time you open the Bible, but it happens often enough to make it worth it. That's what happened to John that day. Now I get it. Now I understand that's who Isaiah was talking about. Now that's not all John knew. Because remember, John knew the word of God. He knew there was another servant song that said something very significant. And he realized this was about Jesus too. It's Isaiah 52 and 53. Some of you know this. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance were so marred, was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I'm not saying that John knew that day that Jesus was going to be arrested and betrayed and handed over to the Romans who would nail him to a cross. John would be long dead before any of that would happen. But I'm here to tell you, I believe with all my heart because John knew the word and because he had heard the voice of God from on high. He came to realize that day that Jesus had come not, to, not just to reign over us, but to suffer for us first. See, John knew, John knew that Jesus came to die. And that's not the script any of us would write. If we didn't know how the Bible story ended and we were there at that time and we'd heard that voice and we were up, it was up to us to write the script, we would have said, okay, from now on, Jesus goes straight to Jerusalem. They put a crown on his head. He sits on a throne. All the nations come and bow down before him. Because that's what happens, right? When, when the voice of God himself endorses one person and says, this is my son. But that's not the way the world works, is it? See, that's what... That's what John probably thought before that was going to happen. That's what most Israelites thought was going to happen. What he didn't know was Jesus had not come for a crown, but for a cross. Not for a a crown on his head, but a, a cross on his back. And he carried that rough wood across his lacerated shoulders until he couldn't carry it any further. They had to recruit a man from the crowd. He'd lost so much blood from the flogging he had taken from the soldiers. And together they carried that cross to the top of that hill where they nailed his hands and his feet to it. And we didn't care. I mean, spiritually speaking, we were in the crowd yelling, crucify, crucify. You say, well, I wasn't there, Jeff. That was 2,000 years ago. Yes, but our sin, every time we sin, we're saying crucify. Every time we sin, we're spitting in his face. We didn't care. Jesus did it anyway. We didn't know it, but all that blood that was spilled was healing us. We didn't know it, but God was making him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's a miracle, something we could never have foretold or made up We didn't know it, but he was becoming our sin so that he could be rejected, so that we could be accepted, so that we could become children of God. He was the son of God, yet he was rejected so that we who have no place in God's presence become his children. Think about that. The suffering servant made it so we could be sons and daughters of the king, so that finally, no matter how we look, no matter what mistakes we've made, no matter how bad we've failed, no matter what anybody says about us, no matter what our own, the voice in our own head says about us, we know, we know that when God looks on us, he says, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. And it will always be that way. Jesus makes us good enough. Now, let me ask you something, two things. Number one, how many of you, not asking for any outward sign, How many of you would say in your heart of hearts, I don't know that. I don't have that understanding. I don't know that I'm good enough in the sight of God. I don't feel it. Come talk to me afterwards. We're going to continue worshiping the Lord. Isn't he worth it? But as soon as we're done, come see me. I'm going to be in the 
area that says next steps. And for the rest of you who would say, yeah, I know that. I know that in Christ I'm good enough. How many people do you know personally who don't know that? See, that's what we're here for. Let's pray. Let's lift them up by name. People who need to know there is a way to be good enough eternally in the sight of the only one whose opinion matters. And it can change your life forever.